Hello. We are glad you found us. Please sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome to When Life Attacks. Welcome back to the show. I'm James Hamilton. I am joined by, well, no one this week. Uh, inclement weather has uh, kept Travis from uh, being able to make the show this week. But there's actually a bigger story afoot. Uh, if you've been following the show and you're one of our loyal listeners, and for that we thank you, um, over the last... I don't know, six months, you've seen the show coming out in short, consistent bursts and then, you know, absent for a couple of weeks. And uh, maybe Travis and I are on together. Maybe we're not. Um, our content has suffered a bit. You uh, might have noticed that our shows weren't quite structured as soundly as they had been in the past. Uh, the best description I can give you for what's been going on is uh, there's been a lot of change. Uh, when the uh, when we first put the show together, it was I don't know it was uh, it was a little experiment of mine, and I've talked to you guys about this before, and it kind of grew into Travis and I talking to each other about you know what goes on in our lives and. Uh, trying to connect with each of you about you know, our our crazy days, and we mixed in, uh, you know, movies and pop culture and our family lives, our personal lives, our professional lives, and and you know that that's kind of fed the show. And uh, those details uh, have changed over time. Travis and I uh, would meet at a much more centralized location and it was quite easy for both of us to get together, produce a show and, uh, you know, bang them out each week. We had, uh, a lot more time on our hands as time has progressed or as time has passed on. Anyway, uh, that picture has just changed quite a bit. And, you know, when Travis, Many of you remember Travis first started. Uh, he could talk about and share a lot of what was going on with his. Uh, he worked at a liquor store at the time. He had, he had a crazy group of people that he would interact with, and we'd talk about. And there was good stories about, and I think we followed some of them just because it was. I don't know. It was a like a little snapshot into all these little micro MTV kind of. I don't know. They were crazy relationships, you know co-workers working together and one guy stealing another guy's wife and and Travis was finding these relationships throughout work and dating girls and you know he worked with another buddy Obi-Wan and and there was crossover there and he worked for old friends of mine and it, it was it was 
just a layered, uh, it was a, a, it was easy pickings for content, particularly early on. And as the show's grown up, uh, so has, uh, Travis's vocation. He, uh, he, even though he was, you know, drastic, classically trained in, in pharmacy before he has since taken that to, you know, a level where things are pretty serious. There isn't a whole lot of joking. It's not appropriate to go on a podcast and, you know, talk about people's personal lives there. And it's, uh, it's quite a ways from where he lives. So there's a substantial commute to and from, and the hours put him in travel through our city at kind of the worst times. And you could find us sitting here doing the show at, you know, eight o'clock on a Monday night. And he's then got to travel another 30, 40 minutes home, get something to eat, you know, get the whole process ready for the next day. And it sort of left us in a position where uh, a lot of the heavy lifting for our show kind of was ending up on my shoulders. Uh, there was always that design. I always knew that I was going to be the more technically savvy person doing the, the you know, post-production on the show and the distribution but I don't think either Travis nor I understood how much more work there would be involved in the show, uh, how quickly your uh, listening audience gets bored with uh, your, uh, your daily jargon and uh, what, what it really takes to put together a, a more polished, pulled-together show. And as time's gone on, you mix our, I don't know, cavalier style with putting the show out you know on a less timely basis the feedback from you guys has been loud and clear you know you guys are either doing this and we're going to follow you and we're going to be part of the you know the lifer lifer land we'll call it and if you're not you know just just tell us hang up your spurs and so uh we actually met here last week to put a show out on uh last monday not this past Monday, but the Monday before. And I was fresh from getting a lot of feedback from fans. And Travis and I sat down and we kind of discussed the ins and outs of putting this together. And uh, we're still in the process of figuring that out. That is neither your concern nor putting any, you know, those of you that sent me emails or sent Travis emails some of which were, well, we'll call them a titch harsh, uh, but mostly were productive and even, you know, a few of them were concerned. You know, I, I, we appreciate it. Uh, we, between Travis and I, we're going to work out the best way to bring you a good show uh, every week. And if that, uh, that may mean changes, that could mean, uh, different people are behind these microphones putting out the show each week. Uh, at this point, I don't know, but I can promise you this. If I'm going to put in the time and energy and forethought into uh, the program, we're going to get better. This is going to be a better product. And, uh, you know, it was, it's like I told Travis, we can just bullshit on our own and not <laughs> not record it and not distribute it to the masses you know that's uh, uh we can just be buddies we don't have to 
we don't have to do it on a podcast to make people suffer through our, uh, you know, wacky rhetoric. Uh, and I, I know many of you, I mean, that's part of it is our personalities and, and, you know, bringing those through the microphone. But uh, part of our personalities are causing some of the you know, inconsistencies. Uh, and I know we deliver the show for free, uh, and uh, we try to bring it to you guys, uh, you know, pretty consistently. But we also break a lot of promises. We tell you we're going to do certain shows, we're going to follow certain storylines through, and we kind of been coming off as, uh, as one person called it fairly disorganized. And I'd say that that's pretty accurate. Not to defend myself again, or defend ourselves, there have been some substantial changes. I no longer office in the centrally located place. I now, a good almost 15 miles from where I was officing before, and actually had to bring the whole thing home. Well, when I bring it home, it means that there's a lot more background and other things that I'm having to do in post-production, which then delays sometimes getting the show out when we want to. It's created a little bit more travel for Travis. And it's, you know, I'm kind of working at home to do this. We'd looked at getting offices and, and doing things for the show, but it hasn't quite grown up fast enough to warrant that kind of expense. Uh, although... We've had uh, wonderful listeners and listenerships and subscribers and people that have reached out to us. We have uh, fans that, you know, are still waiting for the, the T-shirt that's never arrived. And, uh, uh, you know, there's just lots of loose ends that we've, I don't know, we've left them out there for a long time. And, and uh, we need to make a change for the better. And for that, uh, and, and that's, that's why I decided to put show out the this is the only time I've ever even considered doing a solo show was because uh you know we we did tell you that we would do a better job and we would release these things more consistently and we well we failed we came up short and uh, I want to tell you that next week there will not be a show I'm going to uh take some, I'll tell you what's coming up there's more shows in the future but next Tuesday or uh, be Monday for some of you, we're not going to put out a show. So I'm putting this show out this week. I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to probably struggle through a little bit of it because I'm kind of, you know, carrying a one-sided conversation. So if you hear me put some open-ended questions out there to you, that's, uh, well, that's just the way I'm going to do it. So since we last spoke, I've had a couple of things happen. One of my favorites, and I don't know if any of you have had to deal with this, I have a pinched nerve in my neck, which in a mild case, kind of annoying. Maybe you can't turn your head all the way one direction or another. I have a more severe form of it in the fact that, uh, well, I was actually down four days. Not, oh, I think I'll sit around like down. I was uh, taking this cocktail, like homemade val Valium, where you're, uh, you're uh, popping so many naproxen or Advil, and then in the in-between time, you're taking a Tylenol, and then you're going back to naproxen or, or Advil after eight hours or whatnot's gone by, and then you're hitting the, the Tylenol again, and you're doing this interval. I was doing it just so I wouldn't be writhing in pain. I couldn't sit 
I couldn't lay down. I couldn't hold my neck or head in a certain position. I couldn't find any comfort or resolve. It was absolutely agonizing. I, uh, if any of you, if I'm resonating with any of you that have dealt with this, you know what I mean. If you haven't, you're lucky. You're lucky. I had it happen to me the first time when I was 17. I was playing flag football uh, in gym class, and I was playing middle linebacker, and a ball was thrown to my left side, and I turned my head quick to go intercept it, and all of a sudden, kink, I was kind of stuck. I was like, oh, shit, man, I pulled something. Well, that was a week, a week of, of misery. By day three, I was going to the chiropractor who tried to do an adjustment on me, which he was met with. I can't even remember how many different swear words and how, how many insults were cast at him about understanding pain, uh, human anatomy, you know, why would you try to crack a neck that's basically seized? It was, I was just, I couldn't find help there. There, there wasn't anybody that would see me. I literally had the palm of my hand on my chin and I was holding up my head on its left side. And then I had my right hand underneath my elbow because my arm would get tired to support my chin. I even tried one of those whiplash neck braces, but I, I couldn't turn my head at that angle to get support. So I would sleep. I would lean on and kind of hunch over on the, on the side of my bed and hold my head and neck that way. And that lasted forever. Since then, though, I've been on a good streak. You know, things have been okay. Knock on wood. All right. Okay. Um, I had a couple of bouts with uh, just recently where I was kind of waking up and my neck was a little sore. A couple of nights I had uh, fallen asleep into the wee hours on the couch, you know, in some awkward position. The Danif at times will just trust fall on me while I'm sleeping because she's not recognizing I'm sleeping or maybe she does and just thinks I'm going to wake up and start, you know, giving her a tickle or whatever. And, uh, you know, she's what, 135 pounds or something now. So it's no different than having a full-size human just jump on you while you're sleeping. And so I was kind of attributing my, my neck soreness to the Danif. Well, on Saturday, I, uh, I had to go help a buddy with uh, installing his wood floor. He's putting a new wood floor in his dining area and kitchen, and I happen to know a lot about it. And when I went over there to take a look at his project, I noticed that the floor was, you know, all wonky, way out of level. And when you're going to put in a wood floor, even if it's over wood or concrete or whatever, there's only like three sixteenths tolerance that, you know, you can have from uh, in, in the level of your floor. So if you have huge dips or whatever, you got to correct that. And the way that you do that, you've got a couple of different ways you can do that. But the way we chose to do that was to put floor leveler in. And for those of you that don't know what that is, I won't go on and on, but it's basically just uh, think of it like filler. Sometimes it's made of a kind of a cement. You know, you basically mix this stuff up from bags, heavy bags, 50-pound bags, pour it on the floor, level it off, let it dry. And after a day or two goes by, you can install a wood floor over it. Well, I did that from, 
well, I had to get up early that morning because my little brother was flying his entire family out to Key West. And so I picked that whole brood up at like four in the morning and then they were to the airport by five. And then I was to my friend's house by six. And then I did that until two in the afternoon. Really wasn't all that, you know, stressing of work. We had a couple of bags we were mixing, moving around heavy buckets. I, I would have called it a pretty light day of work. Well, I get home Saturday at about, I don't know, 2.30, and I'm feeling a little stiff. By 3 o'clock, I'm real uncomfortable. I went to go, you know, lay down next to doll, and, and I, I couldn't even, I, I couldn't stand to lay down, just my head resting with no muscles functioning, and I was dying. So now all of a sudden, okay, I'm going to try to sit up. Well, that hurts. So then I'm going to walk. Well, that's not, no, I couldn't find a good position. So this lasts, she's trying to give me antibiotics and, excuse me, not antibiotics, anti-inflammatories and, and Tylenol. And I'm strongly considering drinking. <laughs> I'm so desperate. <laughs> so I'm not a huge drinker that somehow it popped in my mind, maybe, you know, maybe I drink half a liter or something, and I, you know, at least if I'm in pain, I'll just pass out and, and at least get some rest. But uh, the funny thing was just swallowing, just the action of, you know, swallowing my own spit was hurting. I, I'd have to like tilt my head a certain way and then try not to think about swallowing to not have the pain. This went on for, God, two days. I was, I was that bad for two days. And then uh, yesterday, uh, I was able to kind of like stiff as a board, uh, you know, sit up and, you know, maybe, you know, walk from here to there, but not much. Uh, I was spending most of my time in a uh, lazy boy recliner. So I miss my Saturday evening with my wife. I miss all of Sunday with my wife and my, and my family. And then on Monday, which I had the day off, totally incapacitated, um, I was going to try to do the show on Monday night and weather kept us from doing that. And to be honest, Travis and I probably would have gotten into another conversation that would have led to the show not even happening. So yeah, six of that half dozen of another. And then today, today, wonderful today, I'm actually able to sort of move my neck about six or seven degrees to the left. Not safe to drive, mind you barely safe to walk and maybe three degrees to the right. I'm not quite so zombie like, but I'm close. So that, that was a, a fun way to, uh, to spend the last four days. But prior to that, I was able to take in black Panther. This movie, it's a Marvel movie. For those of you that, that don't know what I'm talking about. It's uh, based on a Marvel character written by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, you know, like in the 70s. It's an old school comic. Um, the, uh, the hero is African-American, and uh, the, the character is actually pulled from a fictitious country that exists within Africa, and he's, you know, king of that country, and he, you know, has superhero properties because the... Um, the tribe sits on a site uh, where a meteor once hit, and it uh, gives them 
uh, a powerful mineral that you know energizes their entire culture and they're highly advanced and it's led to him having all of these uh, physical and technical advantages as a result. But the big buzz about the movie was that it is pretty much, it's not 100%, but let's just say it's 95% uh, African-American casted. Or you could say black because there's actually uh, non-African-American Africans in the movie. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of friends about it because I've got a bunch of comic book nerds. And I think most of you know by now I'm one of those comic book nerds. And uh, they weren't allowing uh, any negative uh, uh, reviews of the show on uh, Rotten Tomato or IMDb or any of these other places. They were... They were, I don't know, sanitizing the reviews and the remarks. Uh, you could say, I don't know, <laughs> you could say censoring. Uh, I, th- I just don't think that you should ever start telling us what we can and can't say, what kind of re- review can or can't be posted or trying to censor or sanitize the reactions to a film. It, it's, it's just, it sets a precedent where, you know, what does that look like if you do it here in other areas? Freedom of speech for good and bad, depending on what you think is bad or detrimental to your film, it just, it has to be available. And of course, there's many of outlets to get it at, but when you're going to Fandango or you're going to Rotten Tomatoes, or you're going to these any of these other places, and they're only saying, hey, you want to be heard, you want to be in our site, you want us to post your review, it needs to be a positive review. And the more positive, the higher you're going to be in those search results. I don't see how that's, that's fair at all. Anyway, moving past that, uh, I had heard so many good things, ironically, about the film before it was released. And truth be told, when I saw the trailer, I was not excited. It's, uh, I've got, you know, and I've I've said this before, I've got a certain amount of superhero fatigue. So Black Panther, if anything, just has bad timing. I, I don't have any problem with the, you know, the hero of the movie being a different race. I, uh, in fact, that never enters my mind when I, when I, if I see a good movie and uh, the subject matter is compelling or, or it interests me, you have my attention. And most times I go to even bad movies cause I like to see all movies. I'm just a movie nut. I love them. Black Panther's trailer was not to me, Hey, I need to go out and get advanced seats. So when the report started coming out that the movie was starting to sell out months before its release, I kind of chalked it up to, well, we've got a lot of comic book fans or a lot of fanboys, and you know we're just going to kind of drive sales that way. But the numbers kind of kept growing, and I wasn't seeing your typical demographic buying the tickets to it. This was a lot more mainstream and a lot less nerd-driven. So it kind of caught my attention. And they, well, they hit a home run. Uh, The last figure I saw 
Now, keep in mind, the movie released on Thursday night. It has already produced $245 million. It has not even opened up worldwide yet. Parts of the parts of the world it's open to, but there's a lot of markets that are waiting for this baby to open. Let's put that into perspective. Jumanji, it opened up December 20th. It's total rake as of the recording of this show is $380 million. And that's been over the last three months. It's still in theaters. Black Panther has got 60% of that, 60 whatever, I don't do the math real quick, 70% of that figure already raised. That is incredible. I don't want to rattle off all the box office records. It's it's broken, but for February, it, let's just say it's kicking ass. And Chadwick Boseman, who plays the Black Panther, was incredible. You might remember him as playing Jackie Robinson in the movie 42. He, uh, he played James Brown in Get Up On It. And, he, you know, he brought his chops to this movie, and he, he did a fantastic job. Uh, the adversary was played by Michael B. Jordan. You probably know him from, uh, well, he's best known to me from the movie Creed, but he's also done voice work in like NBA 2K. I think it was 2K17 and he did, uh, Gears of War 3. I think he was on a soap opera for, I mean, if you look at his, uh, uh, what do you call it? His filmography, uh, really his, his his big one that everybody would know him from would be Creed. At any rate, I started kind of looking at, at the picture a little bit. I don't want to, I don't want to do spoilers for this because it is fairly fresh and a lot of you are going to go out and see it. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of background about it. Uh, the movie is directed by a guy named Ryan Coogler and he is a 32 year old African American guy. And, uh, I, frankly never really heard of him Uh, he uh and here's why i bring it up when these blockbuster superhero movies first came out everything that i had heard was they're an absolute nightmare to direct you got to have the best director with blockbuster experience who can handle big casts and handle big personalities and go through what many times amounts to years of work, years. For instance, Black Panther was in production for four years. Uh, That you required a director who was just very seasoned, very trustworthy, usually an older dude who wasn't quite so, uh, you know, Younger guys can be quick to go off, quit, whatever. You, you see that all the time. This director or that director has walked off the set. And uh, so you know, do you guys remember when uh, John Favreau took over the Iron Man franchise and what a humongo deal that was? Because he was, I don't know, in his early 40s when he did it and everyone was surprised they were going to give him the project because it was going to be such an expensive project and on and on. And, uh, I mean, it was everywhere. You couldn't, you couldn't open up an entertainment magazine without hearing, oh, John Favreau's taking over the such and such a franchise with this kind of budget. And the big thing was is that the movies, comic book movies in particular, over time have been 
pretty hit and miss. Like this isn't the first Black Panther movie. And the first one I think came on the eighties and it was just terrible. Uh, Punisher, another great example of a franchise they've thrown lots of money in that's just been a nightmare. Spawn, horrible. It's never produced the kind of money they hoped it would. It was really kind of around uh, Blade, when you saw him put out Blade with Wesley Snipes, that it started to kind of stoke the superhero fires again, and in the movies were starting to do the $80 million, $100 million kind of stuff. But even then, it was like, man, do you really want to put your name on a superhero movie because they're expensive, and if it bombs, well, you can pretty much say goodbye to your career. So how does this 32-year-old guy land this show? And I was kind of curious because when you look at his filmography, there isn't a lot to it. The guy, here's what he, the guy basically does three short films, and then he does a movie called Fruitvale Station. I don't, uh, I think he, I know he directed it. And I think he had a hand in, in, in writing some of it, but I think it's based on a true story. And they follow this guy through uh, going through his New Year's Eve resolutions. And at the end of it, it's met with a standoff with police. And so you can pretty much figure out where it goes from there. But then the movie he does right after that is Creed. And what was interesting to me, and I, I was always under, I'd always been told, you know, in social circles, when people would talk about Creed, it sounded to me like Sylvester Stallone had a big hand because Creed is obviously, you know, a spinoff from Rocky. And I thought that Creed was a picture that Stallone had written and was pushing around Hollywood. And it turns out that this Ryan Coogler kid was actually the one that wrote it and talked Sylvester Stallone into uh, helping him, you know, pitch the screenplay screenplay and gave him the rights to his characters in order to pursue making the picture. And so not only does he write the story, but he helps write the screenplay and he directs Creed and Creed's a huge hit. And so the next thing that he does, Black Panther. Well, holy, holy shit. I mean, this movie had a over a hundred million dollar budget. It's got a cast of probably 25 at least notable actors. What kind of stress is that at 23? <laughs> I'm 41 and I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to pull together my podcast. You see this 32-year-old guy out. He's done a handful of work and all of a sudden he's handed the keys to, uh, to Black Panther. I was, I was astounded. Now about the movie. Now, the reviews for the movie, if you saw them early, would range anywhere from an 8, 9, and in some places you'd see it, somebody calling it a 10. Uh, this is not, in my opinion, the best Marvel movie you're going to go see. Um I've heard the Marvel Studios president calling it the, uh, the best movie they've ever made uh, from Marvel Studios. What's that dude's name? Uh, Kevin Feige is his name. He's the president of Marvel Studios. He's obviously trying to pitch the movie, but at this point, you know, the pitch is done. You guys won. Home run. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I wouldn't your latest thing is always your best thing. So, you know, I don't want to get all over the guy for talking about it in such a manner, but 
that I don't I don't know that that's an accurate statement. Does the movie follow the comic book? Mm-hmm. You know, again, loosely, it's got most of the elements in it, but it's not going to follow any real specific storyline that you're familiar with. It's, you know, th- this script was even co-written by Kugler, the story and, and, and to, to a degree, the, the screenplay. It's not, you know, if you're a comic nerd and you're hoping to go see this uh, adapted because I mean, the Black Panther has been written and rewritten several times. It doesn't really take from any one in particular. The gadgets were cool. Uh, I, uh, But again, you'd see these incredibly sophisticated gadgets that they've, they've produced, and behind them is a you know two-table lab that it looks like they're crafting it all on. It's just, I don't know. I don't want to be that hard on it, but I mean, there were just kind of some goofy, some goofy things. Also, being a, a, a guy that remembers when the movie Coming to America came out, there were a lot of stereotypes that were uh, Eddie Murphy had brought to the movie Coming to America. Coming to America is about a uh, fictitious prince who is uh, being forced into an arranged marriage and he is played by Eddie Murphy and he travels from this African paradise to New York City to find his bride and in doing so he upsets his father, the king, who follows him to New York and, you know, romantic comedy, cue that plot from there. But the way they depicted his home country was defended vehemently by Eddie Murphy saying he took from all of the art and the style and uh, many of the tribal traditions and tried to represent them in the best light he could in coming to America. Well, he took all kinds of hell for it. It was racist. It was stereotypical. It was uh, treating African culture as if it was primitive. And I mean, it was, it was, he, he got roasted for it. In Black Panther, this is 100% done. It, it, it pulls together all kinds of tribal stuff. All the, and, and I'll be the first to admit, the hairstyles, the clothing, the jewelry, they were top-notch. I mean, it was top-notch makeup, hairdressing, wardrobe. Some of the stuff was downright um, jaw-dropping. You'll see, I mean, the first couple of scenes, you see some of the outfits the queen's wearing, and you're like, holy shit, who spent their entire life making that? I mean, it was incredible. But it is, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sensitive to these things, but the first 20 minutes, I was kind of like, holy shit, why is this not getting panned like I've seen so many other movies in the past just getting ripped apart? Down to the English, Af- you know, accent with the, uh, you know, the African dialect to it. Like, you know, if you were to have meet uh, somebody from Nigeria who was speaking English, they'd have that sort of African dialect to their, or, or uh, phonetic to their way that they would speak English. 
Well, they've taken that all the way through with all of the characters from this African country speak English with this, you know, with this, this tone. Didn't bother me. Again, I wouldn't rate the movie any higher, any lower. I was just surprised that, you know, Pitchfork Nation didn't go after it for those tones. The movie, on a positive note, we open with going to Oakland in 1992, and we hear Too Short in the background. I'm a big Too Short fan. I was like, right on. This movie's going to be badass. And it was a good movie. I'd give it a solid seven. Seven for me is a pretty good score. It held my attention. I didn't think that it was too long. Uh, the acting was top-notch. There were just little things that were... You know, I mean, obviously, if you go to a superhero movie and you don't think that that superhero movie is not going to be pretty predictable, uh, you know, you probably shouldn't be going to see superhero movies. <laughs> if halfway through it, you feel like you've guessed the plot, well, here's a cookie. You know, what I mean, it's it's always going to follow that storyline. It was similar to when I would meet people that didn't like Wonder Woman, which is crazy because most people loved Wonder Woman, but they'd say, oh, it's the same old story. We, you know, we're going to learn, it's going to be an origin story and, you know, we're going to meet a familiar adversary and there's going to be victory and that's going to be the movie. And, you know, you're just kind of left there staring at them like, yeah, you know, that's how you introduce characters. You tell people who they're from, you, 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 you bring them through the process and you, you put out in front of them who their who their allies are and who their adversaries are, and then you know the story takes off from there. But I wonder, I wonder if a lot of the people aren't just kind of starting to get a great deal of superhero fatigue. And here's what I mean. Um, I looked ahead in the in the next few months to see how many superhero movies are going to be coming out in 2018. And I think there's five or six. Let me see here. The, the list was long, so you have to work with me here. But uh, so February, we had Black Panther. And we don't have anything in March. Let me see here. Um, April. We're clear in April. Oh, and then we hit May. So Avengers Affinity comes out in May. Deadpool comes out in May. We get another Star Wars movie in May. July, we get Ant-Man. Uh, what is that? Three so far, right? Then uh, August looks pretty clear for superhero movies. September... Again, no superhero movies. Cool. October, we get Venom. Another superhero movie. Uh, November, we get X-Men. So that's another superhero movie. We get another Creed, by the way, in November. December, we get a Spider-Man movie and an Aquaman movie. So what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven superhero movies. Seven or eight. I've lost track in all these goddamn papers. Seven or eight. Possibly nine if we count Black Panther superhero movies. So the, the plots of these nine movies are pretty much going to be, right, we can all agree, they're going to 
kind of fall in line. If we're going to reintroduce Superman, reintroduce uh, Venom, uh, continue stories with Ant-Man, and, and we're going we're gonna to have another origin story with Aquaman. Aquaman, by the way, played by, uh, you know, the cat who played uh, uh, Cal Drago from Game of Thrones, uh, Jason Momona, or Momoa. Uh, he was in Justice League. By the way, uh, while I was down, I was able to take in a couple of superhero movies that will also be releasing on DVD in March. We have Justice League and Thor uh, Ragnarok. I think Thor comes out on March 6th and Justice League comes out on March 13th. Both both movies were good. I thought Thor was, uh, you know, six. Uh, six might even be generous. Let's call it a five and a half. It, it wasn't great. I was entertained, but it kind of got long in sections and, you know, uh, I don't, again, won't give away the plot, but there's a scene in this movie where uh, Tessa Thompson, uh, incidentally, also was in the movie Creed. She's introduced later on in the picture, and the first time we see this African-American girl enter the scene on a foreign planet, she's drinking out of a 40. <laughs> I, I don't know how that didn't come up anywhere. I feel like, I don't know, it's just... Again, Pitchfork Nation, I would have thought they'd have just hammered on that. It was, I mean, it's a talk about a stereotype, and, and, and we're in a, on a different planet, and this is happening. It's just fucking amazing. But, uh, and guess what? The guy that directed Thor, very similar story. His name is Tika Watiti. Yeah, say that twice. Uh, he's from uh, New Zealand. And this is another guy who's a character actor, uh, had a whole, his, his directing resume was nothing special. And all of a sudden he lands Thor. I saw that he did a couple of shorts for Thor, but this guy gets handed the keys to another huge, big budget movie starring, you know, I mean, listen to this cast, Chris Hemsworth, Tom Hiddleston, Kate Blanchett, Anthony Hopkins, Jeff Goldblum, um, uh, Edris El... Elda, Mark Ruffalo. I mean, that's a, a star-studded, uh, high-dollar cast right there. You've got Oscar winners in this cast. And this guy with very limited experience gets handed the keys to a huge franchise. Now, when you look at Justice League, for instance, another comic book movie, and this has an equally not as heavy-duty cast because they introduce a lot of people other than like Affleck, and everybody knows Ben Affleck, Zack Snyder had kind of worked his way into superhero movies. He did 300, he did Watchmen, and then he landed, you know, Man of Steel, which did okay. Then he did Sucker Punch, and then he recently did Batman versus Superman, and now he's done Justice League. When Justice League comes out, I encourage you all to definitely see it. It was way better than I thought it was going to be. I gave this movie a seven and a half. I thought it was better than Black Panther. It was, uh, I know it's not Marvel, it's DC, but it was, it was a good flick. If you're burned out on my comic book movie talk, good news, I'm going to change gears. Now that football is over, baseball is in the news. 
And some interesting things have come up because if you look at baseball, other than professional golf, it has an audience that is shrinking by the second. It's, it's average age. If you're a, a longtime listener of the show, you remember last year we were talking about sports and what the average age was of their viewer. Major League Baseball's, I believe, was white men in their 50s. That was the bulk of their viewership. So in an effort to bring the sport to fans in a more timely manner and try to cut down games in terms of time and make them more fan-friendly, they've instituted a few rules. I'm going to read you these rules that are designed to speed up the game and and, uh, tell me what you think. Number one is mound visits. For those of you that aren't baseball fans, the game will stop if a manager or uh, assistant manager walks to the pitcher's mound. Everybody will come to the mound and have a discussion. This can happen for a variety of reasons, but the rule... The rules have changed to this. Mound visits will be limited to six per team per nine innings. Teams will receive an additional visit for every extra inning played. Any manager, coach, or player that visits the mound will count as a mound visit, which is interesting because sometimes you'll see the shortstops and catcher go to the mound without the manager. Somebody's going to keep track of this. I don't know what the penalty is going to be you know, I mean, what do they, what do they do? Add a run or, you know, how is that for a rule to be effective? There's got to be a penalty, but apparently, I don't know. Is this a, like a, like a, like a gentleman's agreement or I mean, you can't just put a runner on base because you've been at the mound too many times. Anyway, uh, they go on visits to the mound to clean cleats in rainy weather to check on an injury or potential injury or after the announcement of an offensive substitution are expected. Also, normal communication between player and pitcher that does not require either to vacate their position on the field does not count as a visit. If a team is out of visits, the umpire will have discretion to grant a visit at the catcher's request if he believes there has been a cross-up between the pitcher and the catcher. So the mound visits are limited, but then they go into great detail saying what is and isn't considered a mound visit. Is it considered a mound visit then if you have to, you know, if you're changing pitchers? So you could use up three mound visits just changing lefty, righty, lefty in the tight tight end of an eighth inning game before you bring the closer in. So all of a sudden you've used four mound visits. Then you're going to replace the main pitcher that's five Do those all count? And if they don't count, well, what the hell does this mound visit stuff matter for anyway? I mean, I really don't think there are all that many mound. Maybe I'm not counting them during the game, but it seems to me the majority of the time you'll only see a mound visit if a pitcher's struggling, a starting pitcher's struggling, and if they need to buy time for the guy in the bullpen to, you know, to make it to the the field to warm up. All right, number two, between inning breaks. This will impact us the most. Uh, as has been the case since the start of the 2016 season, a timer will count down between innings from two minutes and five seconds for breaks in locally televised games from two minutes and 25 seconds in nationally televised games and for two minutes and 55 seconds for tiebreaker and postseason games. 
The difference now is that the tw- at the 25-second mark, the umpire will signal for the final warm-up pitch, and the pitcher must throw it before the clock hits 20. The batter will be announced at the 22nd mark, and the pitcher must begin his wind-up throw his wind-up to throw the first pitch of that inning within five seconds before the clock hits zero. So we're no longer going to come back from commercial and watch that extra couple of minutes each inning of the pitcher warming up. And that's going to add up. That could shave 20 minutes off right there of a game. I've seen guys take that way too far. Another important change is that the pitcher is no longer guaranteed eight warm-up pitches between innings. However, he can take as many as he wants within the countdown parameters noted below. The timer will start on the last out of the inning, unless the pitcher is on base, on deck, or at bat, in which case the timer shall begin when the pitcher leaves the dugout for the mound. If the final out of the inning is subject to replay, the timer begins when the umpire signals the out. Again, those are just kind of details of uh, how they're going to count or what kind of time they're going to give the pitcher. All right, number three, timing of pitcher changes. The timing clock, as listed above, also applies to pitching changes, and it will begin as soon as the relief pitcher crosses the warning track. Okay, so when you bring your guy out to start throwing, he's got two minutes. He's got two minutes from the time he crosses the foul line to be throwing live pitches. That's going to save another few minutes. What are we looking at here? So let's say games were averaging three and a half to four hours last season. They're trying to get them back down to three and a half. The last rule change applies to instant replay. All club video review rooms will not will now receive direct slow motion camera angles to speed up challenges and the resulting review. New phone lines will connect the rooms to the dugout and will be monitored to prevent their use for sign stealing. Uh, The Associated Press reports that a person familiar with the decision said all conversations on the lines will be recorded. The person spoke on condition of anonymity because that detail was not announced. So they're going to try to speed up instant replay. They're going to try to speed up time between innings. They're going to try to cut down mound visits. And they're even going to try to cut down the time it takes to replace a pitcher. So those are the big changes to Major League Baseball. I believe uh, this last week... Uh, pitchers and catchers have reported. So if you're a baseball fan, we're we're cruising towards that time of year. We all know Travis is a big Baltimore Orioles fan. Now you've heard him say several times he's a big Washington Capitals fan. Well, so last week, you know, after our debacle of our Monday show not working out, we had talked the last couple of weeks about picking up tickets when the Caps come to town. He wanted to get... Uh, club seats and I, you know I was all about it we only had two hang-ups it was the day after Valentine's Day and I wasn't sure when the missus wanted to do Valentine's Day you know sometimes that day slides but I was I had made plans for her on February 14th and they were surprise plans so we didn't really it made it awkward to talk to her about how Valentine's Day was going to go down but I, I was just trying to get you know a feeler for it And I had let Travis know that I had intended to celebrate Valentine's Day on Valentine's Day. But I play darts on Thursday nights, and we have kind of a, I don't know, our league is rather intense. And so uh, there's, there's money on the line each night that you're playing, and 
makeup games can be tedious because of the timing of things and the people that run the leagues. So basically, if you're going to miss a night, you either have to A, find somebody who can substitute for you, or B, get the other team to willingly reschedule. So on Monday, I start texting the team I'm going to play saying, hey, you know, I, I need to move our game. And I don't hear from them on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, I get a text message from them basically saying, look, uh, you didn't give us enough time and, uh, you know, we're not going to reschedule. So you guys can either forfeit or show up. Now, keep in mind, if we forfeit, it means a nice financial windfall for them and a huge jump in the in the standings. And uh, if uh, so, so my only option was to try to find a replacement. And they were nice enough to not tell me that they wouldn't be showing up until like, you know, Wednesday. It was like Valentine's Day. They told me, oh, well, hey, you know, we're not going to let you let you sub out. So I start trying to get a hold of people. And uh, I've got a couple of subs. But again, darts are not a huge, a huge thing. Even in our area in the middle of winter, believe it or not, backward Minnesota Darts aren't a thing in most of the country. I understand that. It's a, you know, we'll call it a hobby game at best. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm in a league, so I know people who either do play or don't play at certain times of the year. You'd think it would be easy for me to get a sub. I put out six or seven text messages and, you know, n- nothing. Crickets. One guy gets back to me, you know, dude, it's, it's Valentine's day week. I'm, you know, we we're going to make a couple days of it. I I'm sorry. I can't sub. And so I know how important this is to Travis. He really wants to go to this game. And I mean, I'm trying up to like zero hour, like two hours before the game. I'm like, you know, I'm not ready to say we're not going to go. I've still got one more person that, you know, I'm waiting on da, 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 da. But man, I just, I ran out of time and God, he was so disappointed we weren't able to get to the game. But, you know, I, I had done everything that I could possibly do to try to, to get to this game. Obviously, Travis is like, you know what, I'd just say screw it. But, I, you know, I, I play with a partner, we play teams and, you know, I couldn't do that to my partner. And I, I had made, obviously, the obligation of playing this league. So I'm not really like that. Now, whether Travis win or not, I don't know. He may have, he may not have. Hard to get people to go to hockey games impromptu, especially in Minnesota, because, you know, wild tickets, for instance, in the section that Travis wanted to sit in are between $180 and $200 a ticket. That's cover. So if you buy them scalped and, you know, the the capitals were, uh, you know, they're only a few points away from the wild in the standings, you have uh, Ovechkin. He's kind of a big draw. So tickets could have cost him 200 225 depending. Yeah, tough to say. I can tell you that the Caps did kick the shit out of the wild, and I was kind of happy not to be on the receiving end of, of uh, Travis's berating. He'd been quite happy and gloating the whole time. <clears throat> All right, what else happened to me this week? This I'm going to put to you. This is not sports or movies or anything else. This is a, this is a personal question. And uh, you know, friends and family of mine may know may know who I'm I'm talking about here. Uh, but uh, it, it's not my place to put this person's name out in the world. 
So I'm just going to uh, just going to refer to this guy as my friend. I'm not going to even give him a hand a fandal. Uh, he is a friend of mine that I've had since I moved to Minnesota. We've been buddies for over 25 years, and uh, you know I've lived with him a couple of times. Uh, he rented a room from me when I bought a house, and I don't know. We probably spent at least five years I can think of living underneath the same roof. So, I mean, I, I know this guy, I know this guy really well. And he's a, a dear friend of mine, but, uh, you know, growing up, uh, particularly in high school, he was a nerd. He was, uh, a smart cat. He, uh, he was in all the advanced classes. He's well-spoken, uh, sharp as a tack. But, uh, you know, he was, he wasn't, uh, full of self-confidence. He wasn't, a he wasn't terribly tall. He wasn't ugly and he, but he wasn't terribly handsome. You know, he's an average cat, but, uh, you know, our relationship was based on the fact that he was funny as hell and, uh, people from time to time like to pick on nerds. And I, I don't like that. And I happen to be of, uh, a size and stature where I can stop that if I choose to. And so on many occasion, I would, uh, I would step in when guys were picking on him and, you know, he, I don't think anybody deserves that. I'm not a, a bully. I never have been. And I tend to put myself in between, uh, harm and people that can't defend themselves. I'm really, I'm really not the guy that even wants to hurt the person that's bullying. You know, I just, I just want it to stop. You know, however that happens, go ahead and bully me. I can take it, uh, but leave this person alone. And as I've gotten older, I can see that you know, some of those little scars that take place when you're younger, you know, they cut, they cut real deep. So uh, anyway, we we became close friends, and by the time high school was wrapping up, my buddy was finding kind of a different uh, identity. He was. Uh, he was finding uh, a place and a love for music, particularly rock music. Loved it. Uh, loved singing it. Uh, was completely and totally interested in managing music acts and, and producing music and performing music. And his, fr- his other friends, he had other friends that were from different parts of the cities that were really involved in the Minneapolis music scene, and he just took to it. I mean, he loved it. Part of that, though, you know, it's a fast scene and uh, uh, drugs were a big part of that scene. Truth be told, a lot of the drugs that he was finding in that music scene, he was introducing me to. I know that sounds terrible, but I was willing and interested and curious. So uh, I think the... uh, I don't really need to go through this. Well, I'll go through the specifics. (laughs) I'm not shy. Uh, When I say introduced me to him, it wasn't necessarily the first time that I did them, but I was now doing them with people where I could readily get them now. Like if I wanted, uh, if I wanted mushrooms or if I wanted LSD or I wanted something harder, um, I now had this person who not only was, was willingly doing it, but, he was happy to to hook you up and he had created this environment 
where everybody was fucked up. So it wasn't, you know, Friday night, you could eat a bag of mushrooms, smoke a quarter of weed, drink all night, and find yourself into all kinds of other drugs and be completely and totally wasted. And you didn't stand out because everybody else was as equally fucked up. And you had the extra, you know, benefit of being around some pretty talented musicians. Granted, and those of you that know me know this, I do not like house music or live music for the most part. Uh, if I, you know, like if I go to big acts or big concerts, I have a pretty good idea of if it's going to be a good show or not. But it, when it comes to somebody handing me a flyer to come see their cousin play down at this bar, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm just not that guy. And if it's bad, you think it's painful for the people on stage that are putting out a bad act. It is painful for me. I just, I just can't do it. I just, I feel, I feel so bad for him when it's bad. I feel it's like it's ripping through my very soul. I just, I just can't do it. I can't do it. So, so my body would be selective about, you know, which shows he would invite me to and which shows I wouldn't. Cause People, even the deputy said it, and I've mentioned it many times before, I can't hide my pricky face, right? I just, if it sucks and anybody that knows me looks at me, they're like, okay, all right. I think even people that don't know me are like, yep, he fucking hates it. It's awful. <laughs> and if you're grooming bands like my buddy was, you, you know, you don't want that. You're trying to, you know, pump them up. Anyway, um, as time marched on, uh, he went on to uh, leave that scene in a series of, of, you know, lower station jobs to go on and, and graduate from college. And he had gotten a management degree and he had built his, he'd actually built a music empire, if you will. He'd opened a recording studio. He was overseeing a couple of different bands. He'd met a girl who was uh, talented and educated and smart and cute and loved him. And it seemed like, man, he was, he was shooting to the top. And uh, he had had some problems from uh, the point in time we lived together to getting to this point where he looked like he was shooting for the stars. He had had... Uh, you know, drug convictions and DWI convictions. And he, he'd had problems. He had a period of time where he had to uh, break up with a longtime girlfriend and move his shit into storage and go stay with his parents for a couple of months. I can remember, you know, two different times, uh, once when we were living together and once a few years after where I was his only way to get back and forth from jobs or you know, to go out on Friday night, every Friday I would look at, you know, and look at the, I'd take my wife out to dinner at the time. She was my wife. She's my girlfriend. And, uh, you know, look at the clock and say, well, babe, it's, uh, it's nine o'clock. I'm going to go pick up, you know, so-and-so and we're going to go out. And, and she got it. She was cool about it. She's like, okay, no problem. I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. And we'd go raise hell for a few hours. We weren't out doing drugs or anything. In fact, he was, he was having to live, you know, straight edge back then. But we would, you know, listen to music, go see shows, go shoot pool. We just, you know, we're just hanging out. 
I enjoyed his company and, you know, I knew he was kind of in a tough spot and he was sobering up. So when he had made this turn and, and went to school and met this girl and it looked like everything was on the up and up, man, I mean, all, many of us that, uh, knew him and had watched him progress thought, well, holy shit, this guy's, you know, this guy's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna get his dream. He's gonna get where he's going. Well, after graduating from college and uh, showing me his recording studio, he, uh, he had this girl hanging out with him. And she sort of looked like Iggy Pop. She couldn't have weighed 90 pounds. She looked like she, looked like she had seen a lot of rough nights. Very punk, very band-like. Uh, I think she was in a band. I don't want to tell you the name of the band for those of you in my community that might might know this cat, but I think the the name of the band had rape in it. <laughs> it was an all-girl band, and uh, <laughs> you just had to have seen her, and you were just like, okay, this all makes sense. And you know, he I thought he was representing the product. And lo and behold, he goes home and he says to his very professional, very successful, very cute wife, I'm bored with this. Actually, I'm sorry. It wasn't his wife. He's not a marriage cat. It was his longtime girlfriend. I'm done with this. And decides to shack up with this band chick. And if you were friends with my buddy, you, you knew this wasn't good. He was particularly uh, drawn to powders and speed, you know, smoke and glass and, and uh, um, you know, meth and, 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 you know, back in the 90s you would have called it crank and today you call it meth. Uh, you know, he loved to smoke crack. I know that sounds terrible, uh, but... Uh, he had gotten past a bunch of that. He had gotten past that heavy drug use. He always, you always thought it was just a, just a phase. But uh, it wasn't just a phase, and you started to see that it wasn't a guy that was really just drawn to drugs or drawn to a particular music scene or or drawn to. I mean, he. It was like high anxiety, you know, uh, high anxiety, you get close to the edge of, uh, if you're at any kind of a height, you can't stop yourself from jumping or falling. It's not just uh, panic or unrealistic fear of height. It is a condition that actually will make you just fall off the edge. And he had that. He felt like, because he was smart. I mean, it wasn't impressive that he went to, you know, in his 30s and graduated from college. That wasn't impressive. He was a bright, smart, sharp kid the entire time I knew him. And he was so smart, he could see that the university and scholastic system was bullshit. But he could also see he wasn't going to get the loans and things he needed if he didn't play the game. So he sort of timed these things outright so he could party and play in his 20s. He'd go to school in his 30s and he'd, you know take over the music industry from there. But he had a confidence about himself 
uh, using drugs that were, it was unparalleled. I can remember times where I'd be ridiculous. If, if I was, if, if right now, if I think back to some of the nights we were partying, I was embarrassing. I just didn't handle certain things well. I was, you know, all over the place. I was like a wild man. And you could go up and talk to him, and he seemed perfectly normal. Like, you know, whatever was coursing through his brain or veins or whatever, it had no impact on him whatsoever. It was just another day. So I think he carried that with him, uh, you know, into the future. So when he hooked up with this girl, uh, it was pretty much a clear indicator that uh, things had gone, that he, that he was starting to, you know, partake in the dark side again. And I, and I had talked to friends uh, after that that had told me, you know, at various times when he said he was clean, he wasn't clean. But I, I know for certain um, the times where I was spending a, a good deal of time with him that, that he, in fact, was clean and that he was, he was on the straight and narrow. I, I, I can't say when I wasn't around him, I, I'd heard he'd fallen off the trail here and there. But what does that mean? You know, I know of guys that, uh, you know, are, are alcoholics and have had a drink or had a beer or had this and didn't have a complete and full relapse. So uh, he was progressing in the right direction. He looked healthy. He acted healthy. He was moving in the right direction. Well, I get a call from his mom about five years ago, four years ago, and she says, uh, we, uh, we need to go see so-and-so. And I said, well, well, what's the matter? And she says, uh, you know, he's, he's not answering his phone. He's, he's not paying his bills. He's, uh, his studio is, is crashing and it's, it's not working out. He's, he's lost his bands. He's taken loans out he hasn't paid uh, friends back for. And he's, he's not leaving his apartment. And so a big group of his closest friends go over there with his mom and his sister. And, and we stage an intervention. And uh, he lets us in and they're all talking and going on and on for for first hour. They're all talking. And uh, I stand up and I say, hey, man, uh, you know, I've been there for you before and I'm I'm here with you again. And I told you then that, you know, if you got that bad, I'd, I'd come back and talk to you. And he didn't have any idea who I was. He literally stopped everybody from talking and, and pointed at me. He said, who the fuck are you? I says, me, it's Jim. What do you mean? Who? Basically neighbors. We live together for five. You don't recognize me? He's like, dude, I don't recognize you at all. And he looked pretty sincere about not recognizing me. So, you know, while we're talking about <laughs> having this intervention, all of a sudden I'm having this personal existential crisis about, you know, do have I aged that much? <laughs> what the fuck? I'm, I've not seen you in a few years. You don't recognize me? I can tell you that uh, shortly after I did excuse myself to the restroom just to stare at myself in the mirror and have my own evaluation of whether or not I looked, <laughs> you know, like what's going on. Anyway, uh, the intervention sort of seemingly worked, right? We, uh, he agrees to, to leave the apartment and to go home with his mom and to, to get rid of this toxic girlfriend that he'd taken in and, and, and that he needed a little help. And, uh, 
I offered to um, to meet him a few days later at his studio. And, you know, I went to the studio because I thought, hey, you know, there's this thing I want to do. I want to start podcasting. And uh, I know you've got all the equipment. If you're going to get sober, what a great story. We'll take you and we'll take your, you know, your, your, your studio guy and a couple of other people. And we'll start peppering in new bands and some of your old bands. And, and that'll be how you let everybody know that you've recovered is you're going to start this podcast and you're not only going to, you know, admit that what you've done wrong, but if you've wronged any of these bands or caused any of them to have a bad reputation, you're going to make it up to them by promoting them and getting them their opportunity to talk. And you'll be able to communicate with them over, you know, where you've been and what's happened. And if you need to say apologies or whatever, he's like, oh man, that's great. You know, come down. I'll show you what we've got left of the studio. And and, you know, we might, we might keep a portion of it. There's a small portion of it. We don't need the size of studio we're using right now. And when I went down there, it was huge. He had a huge area full of pool tables and shit where acts could, you know, hang out and bullshit. They could even party. They had uh, a, a huge sound and mixing board. They had, a, they had a room that was so quiet that if you sat in there, you could hear your own heartbeat. It was, it was insane. But it was huge. It had to have been, I don't know, a few thousand dollars a month or more. I would have guessed probably, you know, where it was in Minneapolis, probably five to seven thousand dollars a month in rent. And you know, this was five years ago. Music was still pretty much not. I mean, what is studio time? A hundred bucks an hour, two hundred bucks an hour. So you've got to have at least two to three full weeks of people renting your studio before you're making a profit. I could have told them that they had rented too much space early on, but you know, many people believe that you've got to pull off a certain look in order to be successful. And, and my buddy was definitely, you know, he was of that mindset, but we went down there and he was, he was totally into it. And, uh, but I had spent the day with him and people had been coming in and recording and, and he told me, you know, uh, I was talking with my dad and because I want to enter the, the professional sphere sphere, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go on a podcast and tell people I'm a drug addict. Uh, I think it'll keep me from getting jobs and, you know, I just don't want to do it. And I said, you know, that's, that, that's okay. You know, I get that. That's, that's understandable. Um, but, it, you know, it's just one of many ways and many things you can do to get back into this industry. It was just, this was just my idea and it was something I was willing to do. But I'm still, you know, I'm still that guy. I'm still your buddy. I'll still be there for you. And he's like, man, it's awesome. Well, I kind of, you know, I was trying to text him here and there, but, you know, we're busy. And, you know, I'd talked to his mom and, and she said she'd she'd tell me if, you know, what the story was with things. And so we had scheduled... Uh, his mom and I had scheduled a, uh, a dinner and she was going to tell me where, where and when I could help out because from where we were, we had all lived in the same community. His mom and dad since then had sold their place and moved like an hour away from where we live. And so, uh, she was going to talk about what I could do in helping him move, uh, to their new area. It's kind of just, you know, how things were going and, we could kind of game plan between the two of us what the best ideas would could, could be. And, you know, because obviously me driving an hour there and an hour back could be difficult on Friday nights or whatnot. 
And uh, we get to dinner and she says, you know, uh, Jim, we think that there's a, a pretty big problem. And I said, well, uh, you know, what do you mean? She said, uh, he, he won't leave his apartment again. And I said, you know, well, well, why? What's the problem? She said, uh, he thinks, he thinks that the CIA is trying to get into his computer and to incriminate him. And he is going to do everything he can to figure out who's messing with him. And I said, well, you know, that's just, that's the drugs. That's the drugs. You get him off the drugs, he'll be fine. And she said, well, that's the thing. Uh, we've had him hospitalized. I said, really? I said, well, what's wrong with him? And she said, well, we've had him, you know, hospitalized because of, of this condition. Uh, we think he might be a schizophrenic. And I said, uh, well, you don't just, uh, you know, I don't, do you just get that from drug use or we being a little strong? And, and I was kind of hard on his mom because she's kind of that way. You know, she's kind of too far, too fast, too soon. And uh, I wanted to make my own evaluation of him. So I'm not meaning a professional evaluation. I just mean I've, I know him pretty well. And I, I think that he's smart enough to bullshit his way into not having to move in with his parents. And he would go to great lengths for that. He's just that kind of cat. He's smart. I know that doesn't sound smart, but he, you know, he knows how to maneuver, to move a social situation in a direction that will benefit him the most. And if he could put, you know, mix a little guilt in with a little bit of hospitalization and work the professionals just right, he could get himself not only not living with his parents, but not living with her in his own place, paid for by his parents while he was getting on his feet. And, and that seemed like it was a logical thing to me. Like, okay, I could see him kind of trying to manipulate the situation because he's a control freak and he'll, he'll go to great lengths. And I sit down and I talk to him. And you know that look you have between friends when you're clear that what they're telling you, they 100% believe. You know they are not fucking with you at all. Well, he had that look with me when he told me that there were people out to get him. And that, uh, I mean, he was going into the, he was trying to hack in or learn how to hack into the hundreds of thousands of core system files that made up Windows because he was going to find the bug in the machine. He was going to identify that one piece of code that was letting everybody in. And he had taken apart, you know, he'd smashed his cell phone. He had, he got, he had gone to great lengths. He had uh, ripped apart the, the, the phone lines in his, in his apartment. And he had, uh, done similar things at his parents' house and was exhibiting behavior that was just not him, you know, it's just not him. Uh, most of this behavior was described to me by his mom. And uh, so after that, you know, after that hospitalization, I, I sent him a text message and I said, hey man, you know, how you doing? How you this? How you that? And he says to me, uh, we're done. Anybody that was my friend from this date back, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I am releasing you back to the world, he says. Like, uh, well, what did I do? 
And he didn't, he never offered any explanation. And I didn't accept that as, as acceptable. I'm like, no way we've been buddies forever. And I'm not just going to forget you. And I, you know, I know you were telling me this, but I'm, I'm going to check in with you and I'm going to keep checking in with you. And whether you tell me to or not, because we're buddies and, uh, you know, there's no reason to be ashamed. There's no reason to feel this way. This is, you know, this is the deal friends for life. And so I would send him text messages and have sent him text messages, whether it was his birthday or a holiday or just to check in. And more times than not, I never get a response. Um, I've received Christmas cards from his family where they know I've been trying to get a hold of him and they apologize and they try to give me some updates and let me know how he's doing. And uh, recently I, I, I text messaged him for his birthday. It was probably eight months ago when he replied, thanks. And I thought, okay, we had a little building block there. He said, thanks. He didn't, he didn't say, don't talk to me anymore. Don't this, don't that, you know, maybe we're starting to move in the right direction. So the other day I sent him a text. I'm like, Hey man, I hadn't heard from you in a while. I just was wondering, you know, how the family's doing, how you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And he sends me a text message back and it says, uh, I'm going to send you the same text message I sent to a girl who got a hold of me and she said she keeps dreaming about me. And he sends me this text message and it's, you know, about how he's struggling with voices in his head and every time the voices get loud, they penetrate other people's dreams and we'd just be doing a big favor if we just ignored the dreams and the voices because if we ignore the voices, then the voices won't be bothering him and if we just stay away, that would be great because us coming back into his life reminds him of the time he was really sick and it only makes him sicker. And so now I'm like, okay, I, I, my presence in his life is making his struggle with sanity even more difficult. And, and, and at this point, I'm, and even right now, I'm kind of struggling with, well, holy shit, man. I mean, if I lost my buddy for life, is that what's going on here? Is there no progression in, in getting him help? And so I started kind of, and I've hinted about this in the show recently, which is why it's on my mind tonight. Uh, we've got a kid that's a drug user who is using heavy drugs. And most of the effective treatment that I see for schizophrenics or any anxiety or depression lies within the same class of illegal drugs. And do you think it's a good, I mean, when you've got somebody that, that, that's that sick, do you recommend a, psilocy a psilocybin drug like mushrooms, like magic mushrooms? Do you say, hey, you know, this might be, do you call his mom and say, I, I realize this is illegal, but this could be the answer you're looking for to a kid that's, you know, in my estimation, and for those of you listening that know who I'm talking about, the way he's talking is the way a person talks when they get so desperate, they take their own life. That's what I'm hearing from my buddy. And so, you know, uh, MDMA, for instance, ecstasy or Molly, some of you guys know that from, has been proven to treat people with, uh, you know, suicidal thoughts and depression very well. How do you say to a kid's mom, hey, uh, I know he's struggling with severe drug use. 
Uh, how do you feel about giving him some ecstasy regularly? How, you know, how's that fucking phone call going to go over? Or, hey, uh, Special K, how do you feel about ketamine? I know it's a main component of PCP and it's a popular date rape drug, but uh, we've been hearing that uh, it's really effective with anxiety. <laughs> but, I, I mean, the, the stuff they're giving him, you know, the drug company solutions that they're giving him are not working. I mean, we're talking about four years later. And, you know, and I've talked before in the show about, you know, having to deal with anxiety or depression or whether it's hit my wife or my friends or my family and what it's like and how you don't understand it until you have it and the, uh, and what a process it is to move past it if you can, or if you ever do, I don't know if you ever do. And I'm just, when you, when you read the text and you, I mean, he is, he has disappeared from everything. He's not on any social media, anything. He's not commuting, communicating with even his, you know, I know I'm a good friend of his, but he's got a couple of besties that are, you know, ride or die bros. You know, they're just, they are, thick as thieves and he doesn't talk to them anymore and he is so desperate for some relief from all of this and the things that are happening are not working i feel compelled i feel compelled to bring these things up but i'm kind of a you know i'm, I'm around the people that know me i'm kind of a boring dude. You know, I'm not the drinking drug guy. I'm, I work a lot. I'm, you know, an entrepreneur. If anything, I've, I've always got something new I'm pitching. You know, I'm hoping that this would fit that like, Hey, I'm, I'm harmless. I'm just pitching a new solution, but, but maybe I'm not, maybe, maybe I am part of what created the problem with him in the beginning was, Hey, maybe this will be fun. Maybe this will work, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, coming at it at that angle. And so this week I've been kind of dealing with that. It's been weighing heavy on my mind. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to watch your friends and family deal with things. It's even harder to know that you, uh, can't, can't, can't be that cure or that solution for it. And it's even more difficult knowing that when they look at you, no matter who you are in their life or no matter how close you think you are to them, that they view you as the source of a great deal of pain and looking at you just makes their life more difficult. I don't know. I don't know how that works out lifers, but that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So I know this was my, this was my solo effort. Again, we're not going to have a show next week. We're going to be doing some planning, but I can tell you what's coming ahead. I can tell you a couple shows coming ahead. Um, the online dating and uh, app using crowd that, that that show I wanted to do where we talk about Bumble and Tinder and a couple of those other apps, uh, Match and eHarmony and all that, Plenty of Fish, we're still going to do that show. Uh, even when we planned to do the show the Monday we were going to do it, I had had uh, guests that were going to come on and talk, and after kind of vetting them and talking to them a little more, they weren't really the right guests. I'm looking for people that actively use these things every day and can give us a really clear picture of them. So until I find the right people, 
Uh, I'm close. I've gotten, I've gotten as desperate as gotten a, getting on Craigslist, and I'm openly asking people not only to uh, tell me if they use these apps, but to share their profile so I can see you know, how active they've been because I don't want to have somebody come on and bullshit us. I want some true blue regular people that use this stuff to come on and talk to you guys. Uh, we've got another show coming up. I'm calling it Let's Go to Prison. And I'm going to bring my buddy in who, uh, <laughs> God damn, I am painting a picture of my friends. I have a very dear friend of mine who served... 10 years in federal prison and he just got out and he's going to come on and he's going to talk to us about, um, again, I want people to be able to get jobs and I don't want them to incriminate themselves or get themselves into any trouble. Uh, if you have a problem with my people that come on not using their real names or you feel like there's a loss of authenticity because they aren't putting their name behind it, uh, you're free to think that, but that, that's that's not why, uh, or, 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 uh, that's, that's not the reason that they're handling that. And in fact, a lot of the people that come on the show and a lot of the friends that I talk about would be more than happy to have me use their names. And I just don't do it because it's one less thing for me. And so my buddy's going to come on. He's going to, we'll give him a fandle, if you will. And he's going to tell us what he did, uh, how he ended up where he was at what it was like to be in jail, what it was like to know you're going to go to prison, what those, you know, prison or prisons were like, how, to, how he survived in prison, how he got through it, uh, some of the mental things. This is going to be a lot different than, you know, an HBO drama series or, or uh, you know, Orange is the New Black or, or whatever. This is this isn't 60 minutes. I mean, he's going to give you the real straight talk on, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So that's going to be a good show. And then I have another friend of mine, a really good friend of mine who, uh, he played division one football and he was drafted and, uh, was in the NFL. And we're going to talk about what it's like to be a high school star and what it's like to make a Division I football team and what it's like to be the best player on a Division I team and not the best player on an NFL team. So we're not going to be bringing in your usual superstar Brett Favre story. I'm going to bring you guys the story of, of that fine line, you know, that high school star turned college star turned, you know, NFL hopeful and uh, what happened during that process and what's happened after. And so those are just a few of the shows I have planned. If you guys have uh, suggestions, again, the show's going under a lot of changes right now. If you guys have suggestions or uh, things you would like to hear us talk about or not talk about or um, anything at all, uh, send, uh, send uh, when life attacks at Gmail, an email, as you have been, or find us on Twitter or Facebook and drop us a line. We want to hear from you. And um, those of you that have been particularly brutal, keep being brutal because we're listening to you. All right. I was James Hamilton. Thanks for listening. Why don't you follow us on Twitter at When Life Attacks or Facebook When Life Attacks podcast. Or you can look directly at our blog, which is whenlifeattackspodcast.com. We are looking forward to my drugs. What you want? 
I got ketamine, meth, MDMA, Adderall, Bromo Dragonfly, heroin, coke, crack, codeine, oxys, perks, vikes, PCP, LSD, Dilaudid, masculine, mushrooms, bath salts, cortisone, Toradol. I got Molly, I got her sister Sandra, I got Big Frank, I got birth control, I got Plan B, I got that morphine from China. They took off the market. Shit to make your dick hard, oh. shit to make your dick soft, shit'll find your dick. That shit there's from Kenya. Supposed to be a scurvy cure and silverback gorillas, but for humans it just makes them violently masturbate. Did I say crack? Because I got more mm -hmm. of that you too. Crack ready. I got some ibuprofen, aspirin. I got Flintstone gummies if you want. You seem good at your job. We don't. We don't need any of that. We, no. no. We're just gonna take some low-level, late '80s dirt pot. You know, the kind with seeds in it that you yeah. separate on a frisbee. <laughs> Something you smoke at like a Bengals concert. I didn't drive my ass across town to sell some mom some fucking dirt pot. Y'all gonna buy some Cloud 10. I'm sorry, man. They're just new to the game. Ladies, come on, this is Cloud 10. This is the shiz, aight? This is like 70% Molly, 20% Adderall, and it's like 10% fun. What's that last 10%? Small leopard. No, seriously, I'm a nurse, so just give me a name. Misty. I actually don't know. You know what? You seem like a pro, so we'll just take a little a weed and just a, just a skosh of Cloud 10. Are there hazelnuts in that? I'll take this out for the dick. I got you. I'll take this. Y'all mind if I hang out a bit? Uh, uh no. Yes. Please, please, please. Uh, don't, don't stay. Yep.